there's this notion in this country that you know you you can't make me vaccinate myself you can't make me vaccinate my kids but you know nowhere does it say in the bill of rights that i have an inalienable right to give you a fatal disease that was donald mcneil health and science reporter for the new york times on what he's learned from his decades of reporting on epidemics both near and far. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School, and I am joined today, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She's the director of the DuPont Awards. Hi, Lisa. What do we have in store for our listeners today? Hi, Abby. Well, I am so excited to present today's episode. We held a Zoom conversation for students and others at the J School last month with Michael Barbaro, who uh, is a DuPont winner, was a DuPont host, and of course is the host of the New York Times podcast, The Daily. And he was here to celebrate his colleague, Donald McNeil, who if you listen to The Daily at all, you'll know has become somewhat of a rock star contributor for his reporting on the COVID pandemic. Right. We here at the Prizes Department have long been fans of Donald's work, so much so that we actually just awarded him with the 2020 John Chancellor Award for Excellence in Journalism, which goes annually to a reporter who may not be widely known by the general public, but who's highly respected within the profession for their courage and for the caliber of their work. And oh, by the way, it also carries a $25,000 honorarium. Not shabby. Right. I mean, we know the coronavirus has really dominated the news cycle for the past 10 months. But if you want to listen to someone who really has his finger on the pulse of what's going on right now, Donald McNeil is your guy. And today's conversation with him is not only substantive, but it's also really entertaining. He can really spin a yarn. Not only do we get to learn about the logistics of the virus and the upcoming vaccines, we also get this great behind-the-scenes look at how Donald came to be the top-notch reporter that he is now. So we're going to keep this short and get right to this month's conversation, starting with an introduction from our moderator, Michael Barbaro. As always, this is an edited version of the conversation. I really can't think of anyone more deserving of this prize than you, Donald. And I'm really honored to be asked to conduct this interview. And conducting interviews is frankly how I met you. I had really not had so much as a single meaningful, I think, conversation with you until you showed up in the studios of The Daily a couple of years ago. And over the past six or seven months or so, you're very unique combination of predictions, scolding, personal testimonials, and above all, your plain spoken, hard earned scientific wisdom has legitimately turned you into a star on our show. I literally receive emails from listeners when we've gone too long without having you on. They, they say things like, where's Donald? It's time for Donald. Why did you have someone else on other than Donald? And so, and so it goes, it goes. It's very deflating as, 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 as host of the show, I have to say. Uh, but it's been a real treat getting to know you. So let me just start by asking you about your first brush with journalism. I know you grew up in San Francisco, but where does the journalistic story of DGM2, as we call you on the <laughs> daily, where does that, where does that begin? I should present a counter view to that whole <laughs> lead in you did. You know, I mean, I've lived with my BS for 66 years. And so, and so I have a number of other people. So, I mean, the, the, the part I work hard at is getting the, the scientific stuff right. And that's why I come on your show. The rest of it is just my personality. It is not calculated. And uh, I'm not even sometimes aware uh, that I'm scolding, if that's what I'm doing. Or, uh, um, I, you know, the personal stories, that's me too. The waving my hands around in the air is me too. Um, I used to get criticized for that. Um, but so that's the, um, ah, anyway, um, I certainly never set, set out to be a moral 
paragon in any way or, 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 or somebody to follow. I, you know, I mean, we're jackals of the press and we're called jackals for a reason. I mean, you know, I didn't go to the priesthood or to anything like that. This is, this is just all, I'm just saying what I think, but- um, Wait, but uh, you're, you're stalling here. The beginning. Okay, sorry. The Donald stalling. D. McNeil Jr. story. All right. Where does it start journalistically? Born in a log cabin, in, no, born uh, in San Francisco in 1954. I joined the high school magazine. We didn't have a newspaper. I wrote a poem against the Queen contest and got spat on by one of the members of the football team for it, saying, uh, you know, the word sex didn't <laughs> so much exist at the time, but it was, I thought it was degrading. Um, I wrote a long anti-war poem that took up a whole page in the paper and got threatened by another member of the football team and called a communist. And, uh, and I was hooked. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Negative feedback was your, yeah. was your drug. Um, so in college, I went to UC Santa Cruz first and transferred to Berkeley because I wanted someplace more conservative uh, and, uh, <laughs> um, and worked on the Daily Californian, which is the paper there. And it was actually sort of the second the city's second newspaper. I mean, we took ourselves pretty seriously. It was an independent newspaper. It had been kicked off campus during the People's Park riots because we had, before my time, had advocated taking the park. And in fact, that is what happened. And so we struggled financially in those years, but but it was an exciting time to be a journalist. Um, you know, I, I remember the dancing in the streets at Nixon's resignation, um, which had its parallels recently. <laughs> and uh, and then from there, I had always wanted to move to New York. I had seen the movie, The Mean, mean Streets, and the negative feedback of that moved me made me really want to come to New York. So I moved to New York, um, moved in with some cousins of mine. I did have an uncle who was a journalist. I actually had an uncle, one on the Chronicle and one on the Examiner. And both of them had said, look, if you want to be a journalist, get out of town, kid. Just get out of town. Go to Boston, go to Chicago, go to Los Angeles, go to, go to New York, go to anywhere except San Francisco. It's the worst newspaper town in the country, which mm. was true. So I moved to New York and uh, could not find a job. Uh, I got an interview at Newsday, tried to find Long Island, got lost on the Long Island Railroad, arrived from my interview <laughs> three hours late. Um, had an interview at Time Magazine, had an interview at a couple of other places and wasn't finding anything. And finally, my cousin said, you know, we know a guy who's an editor at the, um, at the New York Times. He's a neighbor, he's a friend of ours. And so uh, his name was Dick Mooney and he was very gracious and agreed to see me. Um, looked at my clips uh, from, from college and I had written probably the most important, the most, anyway, most interesting thing I've written was a series about Taiwanese spies at UC and other campuses who were watching other students on behalf of the government to see if they were checking out Mao's little red book or anything like that. And uh, he looked at my clips and said, well, these are pretty good for college clips, but not anything that's going to get you a job at the New York Times. But if you want mm -hmm. me to put in, put in your name for a job as a copy boy, I'll do that. And, and, and talk about that for a minute, because the word copy boy, I think, means something very particular at the New York Times and in that era, because we're talking about the 1970s. So what is a copy boy? I was just literally just known as copy. People didn't bother to learn my name. It was like, you know, newbies in Vietnam. You didn't want to learn their name in case they did something stupid and got themselves killed. And uh, my job was to, well, the reporters on those days typed on what were called 10-part books, which were sheets of tissue paper, essentially, with carbon paper in between. And they would type triple-spaced, and they would type one or two paragraphs on a sheet. They'd pile up four or five of them, and they'd grab them and wave them in the air and yell, copy. And you would come over and say, thank you, Mr. You know, uh, with Mr. Barron or whoever and, and carry it upstairs to the front of the room where somebody who was at a higher pay grade than you was actually would snap it apart and distribute it so that the hard copy went to the copy editor who was handling it and the, the carbons went to other people. You went downstairs to get the first edition off the presses so that they could mark up the first edition because the typesetting process introduced more errors than the copy editors have been able to take out of the first edition. And you did the 11 o'clock coffee run, which was a big deal to go out in the Times Square at 11 o'clock at night and try to make it across the street alive and come back with a lot of coffees. So your first job in journalism is quite literally at the lowest possible rung of any newspaper, but it just happens to be the New York Times. I was a group one on, uh, on, the, uh, on the guild pay scale at the time. And you, you would aspire to be a, a, a reporter. I'm now a group 10. But, you know, many <laughs> other people have climbed higher than that. But I, I topped out at 10 after about a year and a half. I um, know, uh, I guess I, reporter trainee was seven. So, uh, so I, yeah, I, I climbed a little bit above that. But uh, anyway, you know, Sammy Solowitz was our boss. Sammy Solowitz was about yay tall. And uh, he talked like this, was like, your butt belongs to, that's all, uh, no, 
that sounds Irish. Uh, you know, <laughs> you Ivy Leaguers think you're gonna, you know, do something. You know, I just want you to know you're on my clock now. You do that stuff on your own time. You know, you think you're gonna write your way to the paper. You know, you think you're gonna be a big shot one day. Right now, you belong to me. And so we worked for Sammy, and and on our own time, we would write. So I worked the 7:15 p.m. to 2:45 a.m. shift. Would then take wow. the subway up to up to Riverdale where my cousins live. So I'd end up getting into bed about five o'clock in the morning um, and then uh, sleep for five or six hours, then get up and then report, try to do stories and then show up for 7.15 shift again. And that's how you work your way into a reporting job. Mm -hmm. So what was your actual first real journalism job since that was pretty menial and pretty unjournalistic in a way? Well. Basically the same one I still got. I mean, in, in, in I mean, I eventually wrote my way into a reporter trainee's job um, through you know a series of rabbis who looked out for me along the way. Then I was a reporter, um, and I did I did quit a few years later and taught Columbia, taught journalism at Columbia, and <clears throat> thought I was going to go to law school. Didn't go to law school. Uh, wrote some plays one of which was produced way off, off off Broadway and earned me 500 bucks for a year's work. So I realized that wasn't gonna be viable. Um, hmm. Can you just give us a, just a tiny detail? Like what was the name of the play? <laughs> Somebody could look it up if I did that. It was called Chip Shot. It was basically the Merchant of Venice, but set in Silicon Valley on a golf course. <laughs> it, it was not, I was not gonna be Neil Simon, it was clear. So, um, and, and uh, eventually uh, also I was married and uh, my wife got pregnant and I realized it was time to get back to a full-time job. So I actually went back to New York Newsday for a little while as a copy editor so that I could work, work, do my writing during the days and work at night. And then the Times was expanding uh, its national edition and was hiring like 16 copy editors or so. And uh, um, Dave Jones went up to my wife and said, uh, I hear Donald's a copy editor now. I need 16 copy editors. Tell him to come in here and apply. Hmm. And I did. And um, I didn't go back into being a reporter until 1994 when I was made the theater columnist and probably the worst theater. Now this is, this is the theater business news column, the sort of mm -hmm. gossip of the news of the Rialto. Not, I was never allowed to give my opinion. And that's what, that was what uh, Frank Critch and others were doing at the time. Um, so. Uh, I have to say the first, the, the opening stages of your career are not just unglamorous. They sound a bit dreary. Well, getting coffee isn't 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 fun, especially the first night. I completely screwed up. All these people asked for coffee regular. I was from California. I thought they meant not decaffeinated coffee, uh, you know, like regular coffee. What I meant, the regular coffee. So I came back with all this black coffee from across the street. And Evan Jenkins was a late man on the uh, on the national desk. Looks and says, "What's this?" And I said, "It's what you asked for. It's regular coffee." He said, "Coffee regular is coffee with milk and a little sugar." If I asked for it, and I said, "Sorry, I didn't know." And he goes you think you want to be a journalist and you can't even get coffee. <laughs> that was that was a tough the, the back to the theater job. So but but it sounds like you're sort of taking what you can get at this stage. Yeah. Um you know I I mean I had we had to pitch our own stories. I carved out a beat for myself covering Chinatown, um <clears throat> which I do not speak a word of Chinese. Um there was a big a lot of gang wars going on at the time in Chinatown and and nobody particularly was interested in covering them and so I volunteered. And at a certain point, you work your way to a place where you can be overseas. And I think that's where you begin to really distinguish yourself. Do I have that right? And, and, and how did that happen? And why did you go overseas? It happened because Suzanne, who I was married to then, uh, was climbing the ladder at the Times and knew that it was important to do a stint as, an, as a foreign correspondent in order to get up the ladder at the Times. I mean, it's less important now, but in those days, really nobody made it onto the masthead without having been a foreign correspondent at one point, or very few people did. And so uh, she'd been talking about it for years, but she finally actually sat down with Joe Lillibeld and said, I really want to be a foreign correspondent. And he said, all right, Moscow, Bangkok, Jerusalem, Rio, and Johannesburg are all coming open in the next six months. Even though I'll talk about it tonight, let me know tomorrow. And we couldn't, I mean, we were just so stunned. We couldn't make up our minds that night. We came back with like sort of knocked a couple off the truck. And he said, all right, I'll decide. Johannesburg, I had a great time there. So, so with it from a standing start to 48 hours later, we were having to say to the kids, hey kid, guess what? As soon as kindergarten ends, we're moving to Africa. Wow. And uh, they burst into tears. 
then their classmates the next day told them they'd eaten by, be eaten by lions. You know, they'd never <laughs> see them again. It was, it was really pretty traumatic. And although it was really tough in the beginning, we ended up loving it. And it was, you know, I, I, at one point I found myself driving 100 miles an hour down a road in South Africa in the company's car with giraffes in the distance thinking, man, they pay me for this. This is so much better than working on 43rd Street. Well, what and year is this? Uh, this was 1995. Okay. You know, it was an interesting time. And it was a really interesting time to be a South African correspondent because Nelson Mandela had just become president. We got there, unfortunately, about a month or two after the the rugby game that was the famous, made famous by the movie Invictus, in which Mandela put on the Springboks jersey in order to show that he was, you know, the president for all the people and uh, and won the devotion of the Afrikaners that way, who had, who had jailed him for uh, 27 years that way. Um, and, uh, and it was a really, really interesting time. We were there for four years and then we went to France for three years. But I... I really didn't cover France very much and never really learned to speak French well enough to work in it. And, uh, and mostly was going back to Africa to write about AIDS and things like that by that time. Well, I was going to ask you about that. My, my sense is that the kind of modern Donald G. McNeil Jr., uh, the one we all know and so admire, begins right with, with HIV AIDS uh, as, as, as the big story that you encounter. And is that a story you encounter in in South Africa? Yes, because actually in the beginning, I had to leave South Africa in order to write about it because one of the things that apartheid and the uh, boycott against South Africa had done with all the other African states had cut off their relationship with South Africa is that AIDS had never really come there um, and because mm -hmm. the borders were closed. And bizarrely, the, of the first 200 cases of AIDS in South Africa, about 150 of them were white or mixed race flight attendants for South African Airways, which is one of the few countries companies that got in and out of the country. And so the rumor spread that this was a disease that did not affect Africans. This was a white disease. And I heard this from Ntato Mantlana, who was Mandela's own physician saying he had a patient who had all the symptoms of AIDS, where he said, you know, you've got, I, I wanna give you an AIDS test. And the guy just explodes and says, I can't possibly get AIDS. That's a white man's disease. You know, that's for white homosexuals, the guy said. and. Uh, and so there was this enormous denialism, I, you know, and that sort of prepares me for covering diseases like this one, where you realize that denialism is a is a factor in the introduction of every single disease that comes up in the world, and also stigmatization of wherever it happens to have it, and this, you know, this belief that this can't possibly happen to me. Mm. I mean, from the first minute I covered diseases, you know, and I missed the whole first wave of AIDS. We're talking about 1995, so I came very late to the game, but but it but I was covering it entirely in Africa. And so that was a whole different perspective on the disease that, than the way we normally covered it. When does it become your specialty, the idea of pandemics, public health crises, the kind of world that you now occupy so clearly? In, in 2002, um, I, I, we, we came back uh, from Paris uh, without any particular plans. Um, and I didn't, uh, I particularly hadn't been very good at making plans. Um, and I, I was sort of covering the aftermath of 9-11. I, you know, I was a foreign correspondent. I wasn't only covering diseases. I was covering all sorts of stories. Um, came back and Powell Rains was the editor at the time and, and he didn't know what to do with me. And he said, well, you want to go back to culture? You know, so like covering theater. And I said, no, not really. But my life has changed. He said, well, how about science? And I said, okay, sure. And I went to science and I met Corey Dean and she said first, she said, I don't have a budget line for you. And uh, I said, well, uh, Howell just said I work for you. Maybe you could find it on your budget. And she said, all right, well, I'll talk to Howell, but um, I need a health reporter. And I thought, well, okay, but you've got Larry Altman, who's an MD, and sometimes Libby Rosenthal was an MD, worked there. And they had all these people covering mostly cancer and heart disease and the other things that Americans died of. So I said, how about letting me cover malaria and tuberculosis and worm diseases and the things that the, you know, the third world dies of. And she originally said, well, we don't have a mandate for that. Um, no, nobody's done that. And I said, well, you know, you've got all these people who are better than me with, with MDs and PhDs covering it, but I know something about this world. How about letting me do that? And she said, okay, we'll make it an experiment. And that's essentially what I've been doing ever since is it's been an experiment. The experiment is cover the most kind of dangerous international public health crises. Yeah, and you know, most of the time, 
people don't care. I mean, most of the time, New York Times readers don't care very much. I mean, usually I was lucky if I got 35,000 readers for a story. You know, if, if you looked at our stories on the Stella software to see how many people looked at it. And so if I was doing something about, you know, rescuing kids from malaria with a, um, a testinate suppository and getting them to a hospital on a bicycle ambulance, I thought that was kind of cool. And I thought it was um, important. Um, as a way to save lives, but that story would get 35, 40,000 viewers mm. if I was lucky. But when diseases threatened to come to America, if they were like Ebola or if they were like H1, then suddenly, well, I think my record is I got 7 million readers for that first story about, you know, this is going to go pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. about this so that's, you know, that's changed things for me. Well, I want to know how you ramped up to cover public health crises, because the science of disease is really complicated. And characterizing where a public health crisis or a pandemic is and what it might do to the public is really delicate because if you overly alarm people, you can lose your credibility. Uh, if you understate it, you can lose your credibility. You need to get the science accurate. It's really hard stuff. You can't wing it. And I think a lot of you on this call are probably you know, involved in some form of, of journalism. So I, I say this with great respect. There's a lot of journalism you can kind of wing. You can kind of just like get through it, figure it out as you go along. But uh, the science of a disease and, and covering it is not something you can fake. Well, I think I said the first time we talked about this disease that I spend a lot of time thinking about, am I being too alarmist or am I not being alarmist enough? You know, I get it wrong sometimes. I I overplayed hmm. H5N1, I, no question. I, I you know, That's thought, swine flu? So, uh, no, H5N1 was bird flu back in 2005, mm -hmm. I think it was. Um, what do you mean you overplayed it? Well, I thought it was going to go pandemic. I thought it was going to be an extremely lethal disease. We wrote a lot about it. I mean, it's quite a dangerous disease. If you get it, its chances of killing you are about 60%. Um, but um, so far, only. H1s, H2s, and H3s of the flus have managed to go pandemic, and no H5, H7, H9, or any of the other flus has been able to transmit well enough between humans to cause a pandemic. It, it wouldn't take that many mutations, but for unknown reasons, those mutations don't happen. Mm -hmm. um, I... Um, uh, I underplayed Ebola in West Africa in the early days. I thought, uh, you know, the WHO and MSF are gonna get this one under control because they always have. You know, they, every um, outbreak of Ebola before that one in 2014 had basically either burned itself out um, because people had fled the area too quickly or, you know, MSF and WHO had gotten in and isolated cases and buried the dead and um, managed to bring them under control. And this one just got, because it reached the capitals, just got more and more and more out of control. And, uh, um, you know, we, we, well, I mean, we were late to the game, but in part because of me and the WHO was very late to the game um, in their failure to raise an alarm. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, despite what President Trump says, I actually think the WHO has done a better job in this epidemic than I have at any previous one. And I've been covering them for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So, um, they tried very hard from the very beginning to raise the raise the alarm, but uh, they were not listened to. Well, if you got those two wrong, one overstated, one understated, I'm, I'm going to dare say that the coronavirus was your kind of Goldilocks moment because things felt kind of just right in the way that you did prognosticate this particular public health crisis. And I, and I want to remind you of, of just how right you were this time. And back in February, when you came on the daily, uh, I think it was February 27th, this was weeks before anyone in the US was taking that virus seriously. You came on and you told Americans, not just Americans, but especially Americans to prepare for mandatory social distancing. You told us to imagine a world where schools would be closed and people would stop commuting to work. You wouldn't be able to visit your friends. You talked about shortages of lots of household goods um, and, and life-saving medical equipment. You warned us that ventilators were going to be in short supply in the U.S. And each and every one of those predictions came true. And so I'm curious how you got that one so right. Well, uh, remember when you say no one in America was paying attention, my sources have been paying attention. I mean, the people mm -hmm. I talked to, like Tony Fauci, 
um, and lots of other infectious disease specialists were very worried about this. And they, they'd sort of started getting worried uh, around the same time I did, uh, you know, late January, when as soon as the Chinese were able to roll out PCR tests and realize how many cases there were, how rapidly the case count was growing and how rapidly the death count was expanding. Um, I mean, the day that I, I think it was January 30th, I was doing the math in my head and I realized, wow, it was 50 cases, you know, a week ago, it was 500 cases, 50 cases with no dead, then it was 500 cases with like 12 dead. And now it's 10,000 cases with 200 dead. And that's 2% mortality in a rapidly moving epidemic. That's 1918. And- uh, Meaning know, it's I, just like the 1918- Exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's like the 1918 flu. And so that's, you know, that's not SARS because everybody who thought about this thought it's going to be like SARS. Well, SARS is- uh, 10% or more in the early days, more like 30% mortality, um, but it didn't transmit very easily. And it, and you didn't show, you didn't, you weren't transmissible until you were quite sick. So it was easy to be able to tell who was sick and needed to be isolated. And um, you could do infection control in hospitals and check travelers and things like that. So SARS is brought under control. MERS is constantly brought under control, but this one is not at all under control. This one spread like a flu or almost like measles. <clears throat> and uh, and it killed a small number, but anybody who follows epidemiology knows that a fast-moving disease that only kills one or two percent of victims ends up killing millions of people. You know, in a in a world like ours. Right. You were just doing the math. Yeah, and and yeah, and the rest of it sort of flows from that. And also, I'd been talking by the time I was on uh, on the daily, I'd been talking to people for uh, three weeks about things like mask shortages, you know, would there be shortages? What should be done with masks? Do masks work? Mm -hmm. um, what about the food supplies running out? What about, um, you know, Mike Osterholm did an appearance on the Oprah show six or seven years ago. Um, this is Mike Osterholm who runs uh, the University of Minnesota's Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. Um, and he laid out everything that could go wrong during a pandemic. And it was kind of amazing. I mean, he predicted this one step by step by step. <clears throat> including looking at things, I mean, he looked a lot at supply lines, like, you know, where do our pharmaceuticals come from? Where do our masks come from? Even things like how many days of chlorine does New York City keep on hand for its water supply? Hmm. And the answer is five days, five days of big piles of chlorine. And, he, and you think, you know, if our supply lines go down, how quickly is New York City's water unsafe to drink? Um, and so there's, there's lots and lots of ramifications you have to think about when you think about the effects of a pandemic that can, that can really break up, either stop travel because you want to stop the travel of disease or break up the food supply chains because so many people are sick that they can't do mm -hmm. their jobs. I wonder what surpri has surprised you the most about this pandemic so far. The fact that the president of the United States wouldn't take it seriously and save anybody's lives, including that of his own voters. I mean, we are looking right now at a pandemic that is basically this wave of the pandemic is killing the Trump base. I mean, the states that we're looking at that have overwhelmed hospitals are North Dakota, South Dakota, Utah, uh, Nebraska, Iowa, uh, you know, name any state in the Midwest that went for Trump. And that's where things are overcrowded. And, you know, I know some people say, well, good. I reject that. Victims are victims. And, and, you know, people who have been fooled into not believing a disease are uh, are, are, are going to suffer from it um, the same way anybody else does. And I, I mm -hmm. that's the biggest shock to me is is that, you know, when I said, you know, I, I don't think people take the disease seriously until there's a Rock Hudson moment. Donald Trump had his Rock Hudson moment. He had numerous ones. He had a friend of his die of the disease fairly fairly early on, and then he himself got the disease. His right. wife got the disease. His son Just got to explain the this to our younger listeners. This is the, uh, of course, the, the famous Hollywood actor, the great kind of male uh, idol of his day, who uh, who contracted HIV, died of AIDS, and in that moment, uh, actually outed himself, but also taught America an important lesson about uh, just how vulnerable everyone was to AIDS. Yeah. I mean, Ronald Reagan, another handsome leading man of his day in Hollywood, later president of the United States, was a friend of Rock Hudson's. But Ronald Reagan from 1981 to 1986, I think, never said the word AIDS in public, never admitted it, never acknowledged the problem. People were dying by the thousands and he just pretended it, that problem was not happening. And 
Rock Hudson was in denial. You know, his publicist would tell everybody that he was dying of liver cancer. Everybody could see he was really, really sick. He was like a walking skeleton, but everybody was told it was, it was liver cancer. And then he went to France for treatment and he got a new publicist in France who for some reason or another decided to tell the world that Rock Hudson was being treated for AIDS. And that's what the problem was. And then um, Ronald Reagan calls him and commiserates with him. And not only does Reagan say the word AIDS for the first time a month or so after Rock Hudson dies, but Congress passes the first AIDS research bill after that, voting like something right. like $200 million for AIDS research. So that was really a pivotal moment in, in the, and, and my point was that people don't really believe in a disease until it happens to them, them or somebody they know. And uh, yeah, it's a real problem. And it's been true of every disease I've ever covered. Well, this I think brings us naturally to the questions that we've been getting from this audience. And I wanna start with one that, that I think touches on, on what you're talking about right now. And it is from Anna and the question the comment is, and I, and I want to get your answer to it, is this pandemic has exposed America's identity of individualism and freedom as our Achilles heel in coping with the pandemic. And I know, Don, we've talked a little bit about that. Um, and the question is, putting politics aside in reporting on COVID-19 and other diseases in the past, what, have, what has surprised you? What have you learned about American culture and... Uh, how can we apply it to this moment? Well, I'm sorry to say I knew from the beginning that we weren't going to be able to control this disease. Um, because of American culture? Yeah, because Americans just won't cooperate. I, I mean, you can't, no matter how much I get on the Rachel Maddow show and say, here's what they did in China, and here's how we could control us, and here's what we need to do, and you're going to have to isolate the sick away from their families, and that may even include children. Um, you're going to have to get people to take tests. I, you know, we're gonna struggle, you know, ultimately we're probably gonna talk about having to make people take vaccines. Uh, we, we may get to the point of the vaccines, once they're proven to be effective and safe, we're gonna have to have a way of showing people, you know, let, letting people prove they're vaccinated and we may eventually get to the point where the vaccines become mandatory. Um, but how do you explain this? Because I mean, self-preservation is a very powerful instinct and it doesn't seem inconsistent with American culture to preserve yourself and to take the necessary actions to save yourself and your neighbor. You know, that you can't make me, you know, I don't want to do it and you can't make me, um, that we see in every eighth grade boy in this country and most eighth grade girls is a really powerful force in American culture. Right, uh, so the sort of don't tread on me element of American life. Yeah, well, okay, I, that don't tread on me makes it sound better than, you know, I won't, you can't make me, but it's kind of the same thing. Uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, going back to Cicero, the, the, you know, the, the greatest good is the public health. The law does allow, the laws in this country, the health laws go back to the 19th century and even earlier, and they allow you to seize private property, nail people into their houses, uh, do all the things the Chinese were doing. It's all completely legal in this country. Um, it's mostly state law and city law rather than federal law, because that was the tradition. But, um, you know, there's this notion in this country that you know, you, you can't make me vaccinate myself. You can't make me vaccinate my kids. Mm -hmm. But, you know, nowhere does it say in the Bill of Rights that I have an inalienable right to give you a fatal disease. Right. And that's been a real problem in that people refuse to have their right to give other people diseases curbed in any way. And that's why diseases spread, whether they sexually transmitted or in this case, you know, breath transmitted. There are a couple of questions that touch on the vaccine. Um, and I think people would be really interested to hear your sense of the timeline for when the general public starts to receive either potentially, and of course we have to caveat this because these clinical trials can even in late stages fumble, but assuming that Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines keep moving uh, towards emergency authorization, when the general public might start to get a vaccine and when you know full capacity life might resume, optimistically. Um. Yeah, it, I mean, first of all, the general public is is a big, wide group of risk groups. I mean, it's 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 going to be, if they don't completely fall apart into chaos, it's going to be stratified so that healthcare workers get it first, and then <clears throat> the most you know risk groups would be stratified. Maybe nursing home residents, maybe prison residents, maybe um, uh, you know 
people in some communities rather than others. Maybe, you know, it may be people, you know, depending on where the epidemic is raging, it may be people in, you know, red states who get it first. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't, I, I think it's, you know, there's going to be a real effort to get it to people um, by risk groups, but it's certainly going to go by age. You know, Monsef Slawi, who runs Operation Warp Speed and who was a really terrific um, head of uh, vaccines at GlaxoSmithKline for many, many years, uh, decades, uh, you know, has said that he hopes to have about 20 million doses a month of each vaccine rolling out by January. Now, how many vaccines we have approved by then? Moderna and, and Pfizer look quite well along the way. AstraZeneca got delayed a little bit. Some of the, but the fact that these vaccines got approved, and these were kind of the least likely ones to work. People always thought these vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, were going to be safe, but they didn't expect them to be effective. And wow, they're 90 plus percent effective. So, you know, and as far as we know, none of those trials had to be stopped. None of the adverse reactions have been have been bad adverse reactions. So um, I have high hopes for some of the other vaccines too. Um, so if we end up with four or five vaccines and they're all rolling out at 20 million doses a month, we will be, you know, vaccinating people real fast. Um, if we only end up with two vaccines, um, you know, it'll it'll take longer. Um, Bill Gates estimated when I interviewed him once that he said, "Look, if if only three of the seven vaccines that the United States put money into work, there will be enough to vaccinate all Americans by next year." At what point next year? It's a little hard to tell. Right. Well, I'm, let's I'm, just say, imagine guessing when you yourself, a relatively healthy person, uh, would get the vaccine. I, I don't want to try to put a date on it. It's going to be yeah. it's going to be sometime next year. I you know you know you're always pushing me to tell the future. That's the best way for me to look like an idiot. So I'm I'm careful about uh, yep. you know sometime in the middle. But, of but next we're still year. several months. We're still several months away. Oh, absolutely. I mean, nothing nothing really. You know, the, the number of doses that are going to be made this year is in the you know ten to twenty million total category by December. Um, mm. So that's basically going to be used up by all the health workers in this country. I mean, mm. I I hope. Every every nurse, every doctor, every respiratory technician, everybody who has to be on the front lines, every every EMT, um, you know, gets a dose first because I mean, not just for their own protection, but also because they're you know likely spreaders. I mean, we're having mm -hmm. nurses in South Dakota, I think it's South Dakota, being asked to work even though they're sick as long as they're asymptomatic. That's right. It's crazy, but it's necessary, and right. it's always been true that that was going to happen. That you would you eventually get to a point in the pandemic where it's so bad that you don't even bother to test people. You just assume it's what they've got. And, you know, if they're still able to be on their feet and everybody's at risk, they, you ask them to keep working. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of journalistic questions related to the pandemic. One is what's the safest way for people uh, who are journalists and on this call to cover the pandemic? And a related question is about how you cover the pandemic. Someone wanted to know if you're, if you're basically working from within a quarantine, and I guess maybe you can kind of answer those questions at once. I'm working from home, really my girlfriend's house, and I'm a little ashamed of that, that I have not gone out onto the streets much to do anything, but I have, this is the first time, I mean, normally I go to the scene, you know, whether it's mm -hmm. in India or Africa and anyplace else, but now I have so many colleagues who are out on the scenes inside the hospitals, you know, at the front lines, you know, because suddenly the entire staff of the New York Times elbowed its way onto my beat. So <laughs> there's not much need for me to go out there when my skills are more sort of interpreting the epidemiology and the virology mm -hmm. and other things. So um, I haven't felt, but I have covered SARS, you know, in, in, uh, in Taiwan and I've covered other, you know, multidrug resistant tuberculosis and stuff. And the, you know, number one lesson is do your interviews outside um, where the wind mm -hmm. is blowing. And number two is, you know, you should wear a mask and you're, uh, the person you're interviewing should, should wear a mask even more importantly. And, you know, otherwise it's everything you've you've been hearing for months now. You know, wash your hands and, and all that stuff. But it's basically, um, you know, I, I, we we had we had a long session for New York Times reporters are going to cover this, and, and Libby Rosenthal and I were talking about people about always leave your shoes in the in the car door, never bring them into your hotel room, and lots of other things. Um, you know, we've now learned that it's less about fomites about tracking the virus places than it is about the the fear of stepping into the mist coming off somebody else. So that mm -hmm. that's the main thing. Watch out for uh, watch out for letting somebody get too close and breathe on you. Mm -hmm. um, Rose asks a question I find really interesting. In your experience, what do journalists get wrong about the coronavirus pandemic? 
Well, there have been many. I mean, I think everybody's getting better. I mean, in the beginning, everybody became an armchair epidemiologist for a while. And it was, including the editors at the time, it was driving me nuts because they all learned what R0 was and they all learned a couple of other things, but they never really understood that, you know, the reproduction number changes not just with every country, but literally with every room that you introduce the virus into. So they would get, journalists tend to get fixated on numbers and they want to remember, you know, what data is this going to be over, for example, or they get fixated on something like, um, right. you know, does this, if this disease transmits to, you know, three people on average, well, then of course, the, 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 now we see it. And I'd go like, no, what happened in the Diamond Princess is completely and totally different from what would happen you know, in a family uh, or, or between two people having a conversation on the street, depending indoors or outdoors. I mean, you can have situations where one person, I mean, one person in a church in South Korea may literally have spread it to a thousand people in a, in a mega church. Mm -hmm. Certainly, um, you know, there was somebody in a, in a call center in South Korea who spread it to, we know they spread it to 97 people in the same room with them. So that's an R naught that's very different from what might happen, you know, between Chris Cuomo and his, his, uh, his family because mm -hmm. of, the opportunity. So that kind of amateur epidemiology, I was getting, a lot of people would made assumptions in the early on of the virus that there was something genetic about, you know, who the virus hit. So that I'd, I'd come up with these weird, people would ask me to vet stories and it'd say things like, well, the reason it hit Iran, but it didn't hit Iraq is because of something about Arabs versus Persians that, you know, makes them less susceptible to the virus. And there's this doctor in Saudi Arabia says that Arabs, Arabs are less susceptible to the virus. And I'd just be going, no, 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 no. You mean, look, <laughs> you know, underneath the skin, our immune systems are all the same and, and we do not respond differently to viruses and we are not going to respond differently to vaccines. So you have to assume that when, when a virus strikes one country and not another, um, it's because of travel and the opportunities to bring the virus there. I mean, the, the very dangerous rumors spread early in this, in, this, in this country that black people were immune to the virus. And it spread in part. I remember one of the security guards at the Times asked me, he said, you know, black people don't get this virus, right? And I was like, Steve, where'd you get that idea? He said, it's not in Africa. I said, it's not in Africa because there haven't been any, nobody's been on a flight from China to Africa who's spreading the disease right now. But believe me, it will get there. How it spreads will be determined by a lot of things. How much people live their lives outdoors, mm -hmm. how much, how young the population is on average. Um, you know, an entire generation of Africans older than the age of 50 has died out because of AIDS. And so um, the population of Africa, in many parts of Africa anyway, skews very young. And that means that the, that the um, infection fatality rate of the virus is gonna be lower. So, but these kinds of rumors spring up and they get glommed onto um, by people who think they're scientific and it's often bad science. There's two forward looking questions related to the pandemic I wanna ask you. Um, one is about, the nature of the challenge when it comes to the vaccine uh, in terms of getting people to take it. But I'd also add uh, the refrigeration required to kind of get it all over the United States. We're a big country. I know that the conditions uh, that these vaccines are gonna have to travel in are pretty unique. And then uh, a related question is about the biggest challenge that the Biden administration is gonna deal with when it comes to the pandemic. And maybe it is getting people to take the vaccine. I don't know if that's what you think. I mean, as far as the refrigeration challenge is concerned, look, I am not at all worried about the United States. I mean, we will be able to get ultra cold freezers if there is a reason to do that to every corner of this country. And I mean, literally out to the Indian reservations or as far as a way as you can get from, from the factory because we've got the resources to mount ultra cold freezers on trucks and drive them anywhere we want and drive mobile vaccination labs and uh, do that. So I, to me, I'm much more worried about Africa. I'm much more worried about Southeast Asia. I'm much more worried about the rest of the world where it's just not gonna be possible to keep the cold chain up because we can't even keep up the cold chain consistently for polio vaccine. And really I've gone out on polio vaccination days where you you know take the vaccine out of the freezer and you drop it in a styrofoam box with ice packs in it. Um, you know, the kind of ice packs you take on a picnic here. That's, so that, that, the challenge in the United States is not that big deal. Also, there are other vaccines that are coming along. The Russian vaccine can be used freeze-dried, believe it or not. Um, now, there are, we don't know about the safety of the Russian vaccine, but um, it may be possible even to stabilize some of these mRNA vaccines to make it in a form that will stand up to just regular refrigeration. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest challenge 
I mean, the, to me, the biggest challenge for the Biden administration immediately when they take off on January 20th is that this is likely to be such a completely raging epidemic by then. And we maybe see see 2,000 people dead a day or 2,500 people dead a day by then, you know, double what we've got now. How they try to bring that under control, how they, I mean, there's no way that we're going to be able to tackle that through anything um, but a complete and total lockdown, which is not going to be acceptable, in, you know, to anybody, including presumably if the current president keeps, you know, encouraging people to resist, 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 you know, liberate Michigan and that kind of talk. And, um, and we're just basically going to have to wait for the vaccines and, and try to get people to, to wear masks. Um, mm -hmm. But on the vaccination challenge, I know that we had surveys back, um, and we've talked about this on the daily, there were surveys a few months ago where people, 51% of the United States said they wouldn't take the vaccine or they're hesitant about it. And, you know, during the time the debate about the vaccine was so incredibly politicized that many, including me, were afraid that some vaccine was going to be approved by one person, Donald Trump, and he was right. going to twist. Yeah, it doesn't Donald seem that's happening now. No, it's not at all. And I think as word spreads, uh, you know, there will, there will be people who are lining up first to take it. I'm, uh, I'm hoping for the Novavax vaccine myself. That was the one where the monkey data and the phase one and phase two data looked even better than, than uh, this did. But um, uh, as, as people who are resistant begin to see their friends and neighbors get the vaccine and nobody's leg falls off and, and nobody's eyeballs turn purple, um, or anything else, you know, there are no bad side effects, then they're going to think, wow, I have my choice between taking this vaccine, you know, and homeschooling my kids for the rest of my life, never going to a movie, never going out to a restaurant, never flying on an airplane, never going to a, you know, Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner, feeling safely. I think a lot of people will take the vaccines. And mm -hmm. ultimately, I would not be surprised if they become mandatory. Um, because mm -hmm. if, even if you have 10% of the country resisting, that 10% is very dangerous to the rest of, and to each other. To the rest legally, of the legally mandatory. Yeah, either either by state law or federal law doesn't really allow you to do that, but state law absolutely does. This was decided back in 1905 in the case of Jacobson versus Massachusetts over smallpox vaccine that Pastor Jacobson refused to have, and the Supreme Court upheld the Commonwealth of Massachusetts's right to fine him five dollars for refusing the vaccine. And in theory, they could have held him down and stuck the needle, well, the, the little fork prong into his arm. That never it never came to that. But you can definitely punish somebody for refusing vaccine. That's not a gray area in law. So it's possible. And also, you know, the New York Times may require us to have be vaccinated before we come back to work. Uh, Amazon might require all of its employees to be vaccinated. You know, you never know. I like this question. It feels like a good one to end our discussion about the pandemic on, which is when this pandemic ends, do you think there's, do you think that there will be lasting impacts on how we think about public health oh, God, uh, so. and public health journalism? But also I'm just gonna broaden this because I think you, you will have a smart take on this. What will be a lasting impact on us culturally? Well, Okay, on public health and public health, I mean, public health journalism, there's going to be all, a lot more people are going to elbow their way under my beat. I'll have that many more people to <laughs> finish my job. I can count on that. Always um, be territorial. They're all, yeah, but they've always been snatching at it anyway. Um, I, Mike Ryan of the WHO said to me like 20 years ago, he said, you people from the superpowers, and he's from Ireland, he said, you have been spending billions and billions and billions on bombers and submarines and missiles and no one's, you know, since Hiroshima, no one's died from any of that stuff you're preparing for, or Nagasaki. And uh, <clears throat> and he said, and you spend pennies on mm -hmm. pathogens, and they are the things that are going to kill a million people if you don't watch it. And why I can't get that message through the rest of the world, I don't know. Well, I think finally the rest of the world may have gotten the message. Now, it may be like 1918 led to a lot of advances in, in medicine back in those days. We discovered viruses, which we hadn't known about before, and lots of other things. Now, maybe we'll have a period where science gets a whole lot better. Maybe we will start searching for these viruses in southern China or Southeast Asia or any place else in the world where they might emerge. Maybe we will have vaccine platforms where we can, boom, roll out a vaccine in a matter of months when the new pathogen emerges. I hope that happens. Culturally, I was really hoping that we would all come together and realize we were all in this together, which we conventionally say, and love each other and watch out for each other mm -hmm. as a result of this, and that there would be 
greater equality in society and people would, um, and yet I do not see that happening right now. I mean, I, that's another thing I may turn out because I kind of predicted that based on some interviews I did back in April about how the world became after, after World War I and World War II come in 1918, the world became a more equitable place and you know, wages went up and unions <laughs> thrived and the GI Bill was created and, and uh, you know, the European welfare state was started and a lot of other things happened. But I, right now, I'm, I'm still seeing an extremely polarized society, unfortunately, and I, I, I remain to be convinced that that will happen. Donald, any final words? I feel like we can't have a proper event about a journalist of your stature without the inevitable but actually quite important question, which is your advice to the next generation of journalists who want to figure out how to navigate this, this wonderful, weird, important industry that we're in? I don't, I, you know, I, <laughs> all right. Don't be afraid to ask the stupid questions. Like, what exactly is coffee regular? You know, and, and or, because I spent <laughs> a lot of time on the phone, phone with Tony Fauci saying, I'm sorry, explain the difference between B cells and T cells again. Mm -hmm. and, you know, too many science journalists want to look smart, you know, with a little bit of knowledge they have. And that trips them up when it becomes clear when you actually read the finished product that they didn't really quite understand it. And it's kind of gone off in a wrong direction. And so... I try really hard to not mind sounding dumb and also to have kind of an iron butt and uh, just let people talk until they're exhausted rather than I'm tired of taking notes. And usually the best stuff comes out at the end anyway. Usually after you put your notebook away and they think you're off the record. Right. You know that trick. Yes. Thanks everybody. Thank you very and, much uh, for listening. If you want to know when Donald's going to be next on The Daily, don't send me an email. I get too many of them. Ha, 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 ha. Thank you to Donald McNeil and Michael Barbaro for taking the time out of what I can only imagine are incredibly busy days to speak virtually with our students. And if you want to see Donald actually receive his John Chancellor Award, the ceremony video is available now. You can get a link in the episode page of our website at onassignmentpodcast.com. And to learn more about the other awards that we give out at the journalism school, awards for environmental journalism, covering Latin America, nonfiction writing, and many more, subscribe to our quarterly newsletter. You can find that link on our website too. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Baldupont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Christina Shaman. We also had production assistance from Arcelia Martin and Rose Gilbert, our student fellows, and as always from our production coordinator, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journal. Until next time. <laughs>